Hey, I'm Joe Pantoliano. And I'm Daniela Pantoliano. And welcome to No Kidding Me Too. So today we're talking to one of my father's best friends, someone I grew up with. I believe they were in the waiting room when I was born. Chaz Pomentary. That's Uncle Chaz Yes, Uncle you. Chaz to me. Oh, so dad, you know what I don't think I know? How did you meet Chaz? I was shooting a show. I was doing a show in Vancouver. And so there was a hotel called the Sutton Place. And everybody in show business stayed at the Sutton Place. Mm. And uh, it, it was the happiest place on earth because the bar was loaded with actors and everybody had a job. Now, Patty Darbinville was an old friend of mine and Chaz's, and she knew everybody. She was there. And so people from different shows, we would all get together and we'd have dinners and such. And we went to a dinner. That's how I met Chaz. Uh, we were all at the dinner. Uh, and Patty put that dinner together. Hmm. He was doing a Bronx Tale, the play, or he had just finished something. I hadn't seen it, so I didn't know who he was. He's from the Bronx and I'm from I'm from Hoboken and we had a lot of things in common. and We took a liking to each other right away. But a couple of days later, I got a call in my hotel from a, a guy, uh, a journalist who was asking me about my play. Uh, I don't know if he said Bronx Tale and he may have, but maybe I, th uh, that didn't come up at the dinner a couple of nights before. So he's talking to me and I'm going, I don't know what you're talking about. He thought I was Chaz trying to avoid. <laughs> so I said, Bronx, I'm not from the Bronx. I'm from Hoboken. How dare you? <laughs> Finally, I guess the guy figured it out or maybe he didn't. You know, I saw Chaz for coffee and I said, <laughs> some guy called me up about this thing, Bronx Tale. He goes, I wrote the Bronx Tale. I said, oh, my God, this guy called me up and thought, thought I was you or he was looking for you. He thought I was you. Tell him the story. It was very funny. And then we went back to Los Angeles and stayed in touch and became friends. The rest is history, as they say. That's awesome. Yeah. So Chaz wrote a Bronx Tale. It's based on his life. He has a one-man show, a play, a movie, a wonderful movie. I think, I think it's fictionalized based on characters that he knew in his life. Loosely based, we'll say, as they say. But he's a playwright, a screenwriter, director, producer, and something I didn't know that I learned, singer. So you remember him from A Bronx Tale, The Usual Suspects. You've seen him all over TV. I mean, you you know this man. You see his face, his unforgettable face. But most recently, he's been in The Godfather of Harlem. Look him up. Hear him speak now. Chaz Palminteri. He's a wonderful man. My uncle Chaz, my dad's best friend. We talked to him. He's in the comfort of his own home. We were in the comfort of our own homes because that's how we do it in COVID times. Over Zoom. Over Zoom. Well, okay, so we're here. We're here today with my dear friend from many years, Chaz Palminteri. Yes. Author, actor, producer, uh, for those of you who live in the tri-state area, author means writer. Um, and he has been a big supporter of, of our organization, No Kidding Me Too, from its uh, beginnings. And uh, has been incredibly supportive to me during the dark periods of my life with Black Dog, sticking, you know, putting his teeth in my behind. And also the different behaviors that 
that were produced as a result of that uh, the dreaded feeling, whether it was women or drugs or alcohol, you know, anything to to make that feeling go away. So it's been a long journey, and, and he saw it firsthand, and Danielle and I wanted to talk to Chaz, and, and he's been gracious enough to give us his time. So thanks for showing up, Chaz. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be here, man. One of the things I, I, I wanted to start with is uh, we came from the same sort of background. We were poor, working class. Uh, well, you were working class. I was pretty much no class. The, the idea of mental health was nothing anybody ever talked about then. I mean, we, we didn't have psychiatrists or we had, you know, we had stickball and we had kick the can and, and, and we had movement in our lives. For me, the idea of becoming an actor, growing up in the neighborhood, the options, if you, if you didn't have money or an education, the options were entertainment, mm. uh, athletics, uh, politics, and organized crime. Pretty much that's what I remember in my, in my neighborhood, right? Exactly, yes. And so what were the influences on you, and when did you get interested in, in writing uh, acting, you know, tell us a little bit about, about your be beginnings. Well, very, you know, we grew up very similar, Joey, you know, uh, same type of neighborhood. I mean, different neighborhood, but the same type, same type of people. And it was the same way, you know, uh, and I think you wanted to be an actor early on too. And so did I, uh, and my mother used to take me to the movies a lot. And, and I just used to, and, and as uh, storytellers, that's how you did it. You're a very funny storyteller. And, so am I, and, and I would hang on the corner and tell stories to my friends and act out all the parts of all the guys. And I think storytelling is the first form of acting. I think the cavemen told stories about what happened during the day, and they would laugh. So, I mean, that's really uh, what I would do. I would start telling stories. And when you think of how young we were, Joey, and what we had to, like, overcome, it's, it's daunting. When I see a kid now say to me, hey, I want to be an actor. My heart goes, oh, my God. Oh, my. You know, I, I just want to get my sad card. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, okay. You know, so I realize how hard it is now. But you know what? There was no choice for me. And there was no choice for you. And unless you look at it like that, I tell people, then do something else. Unless you really feel this is it. It's this or I'm going to die. Then do it. But if you don't feel that, if you go, well, I think you were the one who said that to me once a long time ago. You said most of the guys that, that took something to fall back on, they usually fell back on it. Yeah, they would say, you know, you know I, I want to do this. I want to get a degree in this yes. so I have something to fall back on. And I've always felt like, well, you know, the, the idea that, that we never had a plan B. It was only like it was success or driving a truck. And... Uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, what, you know, I know that in my own life, uh, coming from Hoboken, New Jersey, uh, New Jersey in general, there were people like Frank Sinatra and Jimmy Roselli and Lou Costello uh, that I knew was from Patterson, New Jersey. Seeing these people, these black and white figures on my mother's 12-inch black and white television, that it was an affirmation that if they could get out, that they were able to get inside that box, 
that I could get inside that box. That, that you know, they, he lived on Monroe Street. I lived on Monroe Street. Who did you have in your life? What what figures, if if at all, did you have? Uh, you know, that you knew that came. They came from the Bronx and went on to succeed. The only person that had some sort of fame. I mean, he was famous and he was a great one of the great singers. Was Dion? I mean, I saw Dion make it as a singer, uh, but I, I never, I didn't know any actors who came from the Bronx. So you didn't know about Burt Lancaster or Tony Curtis or? Not when I was younger, until I got old. When I was older, I did. But when I was younger, no. When I got older, I, I definitely realized, oh, Burt Lancaster and uh, Pacino was in the Bronx for a while, you know, growing up. and But I didn't know, it, it, my neighborhood, forget it. At least you had... I always used to tell the story. I said, Joey Pants could never be the most famous guy from Hoboken because Frank Sinatra's from Hoboken. I said, Joey, you'll always be number two. <laughs> you know, we used to laugh about that. Now I'm getting beat out by a baker. <laughs> and I told Frank Sinatra that. And he said, that's right. You tell me, you tell, I'll never forget it. He said, that's right. You tell Joey Pants, he'll always be number two. And I think I told you that story. You started studying acting officially at what, at what age? Probably uh, 20. A, uh, officially, uh, 20, yes. Did you, where did, who did you study with at that time? I went down and I studied with uh, Mike, uh, Frank Hosaro. There was Frank Hosaro I studied with. And then I went and studied with Michael Sherliff. Michael Sherliff had the 13th Street Theater. I don't know if you remember. Not the 13th Street Theater. Uh, on 13th Street, there was the Michael Sherlock studio. He was a great uh, casting, big casting director who had his own class about how to audition. And you could use his technique in acting. And I really liked studying with him. Then eventually, I got into the actor's studio and I studied with Lee personally himself, which was really fun, interesting. It took you a long time. I, I was really lucky. I, I started working. I started making a living. I was 25 the, the first year I ever made enough money purely from show business. Right. And, and I had rough years, but by the time I was 29, I mean, I, I, I've made a living as an actor since I'm 29 years old. I'm 69 now. Yeah, I really, Joey, I, I started uh, acting less. I was taking acting lessons there, but then I was, I was singing too. I was singing with an acapella group, you know, the doo-wops and all that stuff. And, and what really happened was I was singing on the corner with an acapella group and uh, this wise guy walked by named Little Jojo. And uh, I'll never forget, Little Jojo, that was his name. And he walked by and he said, hey, kid, you got a pretty good voice. And I said, oh, oh, thanks, man. You know, and, he, and he said, uh, why don't you come in and sing with the band? And I said, I, I never sang with a band. I just sing a cappella, you know, with my friends here. So he goes, well, why don't you come in? Just come and sing with the band. I said, all right. And I walked in and, and the name of the group was The Wanted. I don't know if you remember them, Tommy Adonisio a wonderful musician who just passed away. And he said to Tommy, he said, hey, this kid here is going to come up and sing with the band. And, and Tommy said, gee, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, that's really not very professional. I can't really have that. And Jojo said, come a little closer. I want to talk to you. And he got a little closer. <laughs> and Jojo said, the kid sings with the band. All right, throw the whole fucking band in the street right now. And, he, and Tommy turned to me and said, what key? Just like that. <laughs> true story. And I got up there and I sang, um, uh, I'm going to wait till the midnight hour. And the owner of the, of the, of the club said, gee, come back and 
come back next week. And I came back every week. Then finally I got my own band. And to make a long story short, from 21 to 33, I made a living as a singer in a band. But I would always still study lessons. I would take lessons. I, and then finally, it was really uh, Strasburg who said to me, and Michael Sherman, both of them, said, if you don't quit music, you'll never really be an actor because you just keep studying, then you go off on the road. Mm-hmm. If you want to be serious, you better get serious. And then I got serious, and I left in 1980. And then I got a part as an understudy on Broadway. Uh, with Elliot, Elliot Gould was supposed to be in the show. It was called uh, uh, The Guys in the Truck in 1982. And that was my first break where I got an agent. And uh, I was understudying. It's a great story. I'll tell you quickly what happened was that all my friends were saying to me, Jazz, you know, we hear you on Broadway. You want to come and see you? I said, well, I am on Broadway, but you can't come and see me. And they said, why? And so the wise guys were going, we want to bring our girlfriends. I said, guys, in fact, it was that guy, Jojo, who remembered me all those years. He goes, hey, man, we want to come and see you on Broadway. And I says, I can't because I am an understudy. So he said, what's an understudy? So I said, well, if something happens to the guy, then I go on. Not realizing what I just said, Joey. So about five minutes later, I was at the bar. He walks over to me, and he said, uh, Josh, can I talk to you? I said, yeah. He goes, uh, you want to go on? I said, what? He said, you want to go on? I said, uh, what, what are you talking about? He says, don't worry. We'll take care of this guy. We'll, we'll make him look like a mugging. Nobody's going to know. We'll put him in the hospital. He goes, you go to the hospital two or three weeks. It's perfect. I got good, reliable people. I said, no, no, no. And I begged him, please don't do that. But that night, I went on stage. I went, you know, as an understudy, you have to watch the performances. And I watched the performances. And the guy who I was understudying, I shouldn't mention his name, but he was an asshole. But I looked at him while I was watching him perform. And I said, pal, you have no idea how lucky you are, you know. <laughs> you saved his life. You saved his life. Yeah. I saved him from a bad beating. And, uh, and that was my first break. And then in 1986, I left to Los Angeles. And a year later, that's when I got fired from being a doorman when I ran out of money. Uh, you know the whole story. And then I, I started writing a Bronx Tale. And as they say, that's it. You know, I wrote Bronx Tale and that was it. I want to talk about the bipolar nature of, of uh, preparing for a job, waiting. You know, people, they, people look at us. I mean, we're laymen, we're, you know, what's the word? We're journeymen, yeah. actors. We're not movie stars. We don't make movie star numbers. Getting in the room has always been important. You gotta get in the room, you have five minutes to, it's like, you know, it's like selling Tupperware. You, we all have Tupperware, uh, it's good quality, it's made at the same factory, but, why do they buy the Tupperware from me, or they buy it from you and not from me? Right. It, it, it's it's a it's a personality run business, and it's about there's a lot of elements that go in there. But when you are up for something, mm. and you go in, and you're waiting, and all those feelings that go through I, those feelings that I, it was, it's the thing that kept me going. Right. You know that 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 like that my life can change if this guy says yes. Yes. Can you talk about that from your point of view? I was very blessed. In the very beginning, I had great advice 
uh, and I, for some reason, Robert De Niro was really my first, well, my second movie. First one was Oscar with Stallone. But Bronx Tale was a big movie because I wrote it and I was definitely going to co-star in it. And, I, and Bob really told me one thing, and I never forgot it. He said that he never read reviews. And I said, well, well why, why do you do that? I didn't understand that. Because I read the reviews for Bronx Tale, I remember. And he said, don't read them. They're, they're, they're not good. And I said, why? But these are really good, Bob. He goes, well, that's worse. And he said, don't read them because if you believe the great ones, you're going to have to believe the bad ones. So just don't read them. And then at that time, I knew I was about to take off. So I went to go see, I said, you know what, I, I'd like to talk to somebody. So I got into therapy. So uh, I, I met this wonderful, this great uh, doctor. I, yeah, Dr. Phil Stutz, who wrote these great books called uh, The Five Tools and uh, incredible books. And Dr. Stutz, you know, he, he's like brilliant. And I met him. And I said, well, I'll only see him for like six months, seven months. Just want to clear up some things in my head, you know. So being in May, it was six months, one year. It's 30 years now. I'm still seeing him. Wow, that's amazing. It's been 30 years. Uh, and, he, and he just, and really it was because of him and that great advice I got from uh, Bob that he just kept me on an even teal. And always said to me, it's a crapshoot. It's, it's got nothing to do with you. Just do it. Walk away and do the next one. And see, the thing that I'm blessed with, Joey, that a lot of actors are not, is that I'm a writer too. So when I fit, when I finish the audition, I go back to work. I go home and I start writing. So I, I forget about it. I really do. I, I can't stress. And that's the thing that keeps me sane. I, I, I don't care. If I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. And that's the only thing that can make an actor survive without going crazy, like you said. Did you always feel that way? Is that something that, I mean, in terms of like when you were a young guy? Yes, my I had, I had parents who just said that I was a movie star from the moment I was born and that I was <laughs> going to be a huge success and said, don't worry about it, you're going to be a star. And so I had so much confidence, in fact, you know, it was a little too much confidence. Where When I, I say that, you, you know, people go, well, how could you have too much love from your parents? Well, I had so much love that I was a little spoiled and, and thought, you know, the world owed me a favor. So you got to be careful. I can relate to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's some people don't get enough confidence. Some people get too much confidence. So I had too much, but in the end, I, I held it in check. And uh, that's the only reason why... Uh, it saved me, Joey. But but therapy is a big deal in my life, Joey. I, I, what, I, what I love about your organization and the way you talk about it is when we were young, if you saw a shrink, oh, my God, that was like a disgrace. That was like being on food stamps or something. That was like being on welfare back then. What? You saw a shrink? Oh, my God. Did you hear about them? The pantaloni son saw a sh shrink. What you did is you helped it because you've been doing this so many years now. You know what? If you get, if you break your arm, what do you do? You go to the hospital. If something ain't right in your head, you got to talk to somebody. And that's why the name of your organization, no kidding, me too. When you would hear somebody say that, 
Oh, I've been seeing No kidding, me too. You know, <laughs> and when you told me that was the name of you, I never forget that. I said, wow, what a brilliant name that is. No kidding, me too. Well, that, that was inspired because from people at airports. Because as you know, when, when you're walking through the airports, uh, people will say, hey, Chaz, how you doing? Love your work. What are you up to? Yeah. And I was doing that film that I, I produced and acted in with Marcia Gay Harden that Joe Greco wrote called Canvas about the effect of mental illness on a family and, and how it affects everybody in the neighborhood uh, and because of the shame and stigma that's associated with, with mental, uh, mental disorder. You know, if, if, if it's lung cancer, you get a fruitcake. So I would say, well, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're editing this movie now. It's about this mental illness and its effect on not just the person that has it, but the entire family. And they would say, no kidding me too. My brother's bipolar. No kidding me too. My sister. It would always start with no kidding me too. And so it was such a natural uh, pick. What, what I loved about what you did was you don't, there, there, there could be no mental illness in your family. Sometimes you just got to talk to somebody. And for me it was, I didn't really have mental illness in my family. I think I had anxiety in my family. I think we had that. Mm -hmm. But I just loved going to the to the shrink. I loved talking with somebody. I loved being clear. And as a writer, I loved it because I understood myself more and I understood people more. So there's no stigma in seeing a doctor, a shrink, just to talk over life, talk over things. I, I, I don't know. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, one of my doctors said that we all have little issues absolutely obsessive compulsive behavior whatever the behavior you know but it's a it's only when that behavior gets to the point where your life becomes unmanageable right that okay so you got to clean all of the doorknobs on the house uh but then you're unable to leave the house because you know there's a doorknob that you forgot to clean right and the idea of making it cool to talk about your feelings the, the idea that vulnerability and empathy is as cool as, you know, what Hollywood was telling us, John Wayne, right. cool. Um, I was, my life was fairly manageable for a very long time up until my, the forties. And I, you know, looking back through the years of therapy that I've, I've been in, um, but in my case, I felt that there was something really bad inside of me and that I needed help mm. so to keep it, you know, to not let it out. I, 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 so I, I started therapy at like 21 years old and I was in group therapy for like 10 years. And that's confrontational where you're in a, yeah. a room full of people and, they, they, you know, they're calling you every goddamn thing. And, right. you know, and you're screaming at the floor and you're saying, fuck you, me first. And. Uh, ragging on everybody that, you know, putting blame on the outside world when, you know, it's an in inside job. It, it happens mm -hmm. within. In my case, what I call my seven deadly symptoms. So in my own personal life, the first thing that I discovered looking back now was my eating. At 10 years old, by the time I was 12, I was like 120 pounds overweight because I was eating all those feelings away. And then I hit puberty and I liked girls and I wanted the girls to like me, but I was this, you know, fat kid. And, and I thought, well, if I could be like Michael Mulvaney, you know, who was 
you know, the star of our, our little league team and he was thin and the girls liked him. <laughs> so if I could lose weight and the girl, then the girls would like me. Right. And that went from, if I could lose weight, then the girls would like me. Uh, or if I could be inside my mother's television then the, you know, the, you know, then, then I'd show them. I had this, I had this kind of resentment feeling that lived inside of me that I'll show them I'm not a piece of shit. When I become successful, then they'll know I'm not a piece of shit. And, you know, it took me a long time to find out I never knew who they were. Right. It was really me. You know, it was, it was, I felt that way. You know, people think that I'm trying to be modest when I say that whatever luck, that, that luck had a major part in, in whatever happened to me. It, it, it was just, I was at the right place at the right time and I got, and I was tremendously lucky. I cannot take any credit for what happened. It's, it's just like, you know, the, the, the creative muses that come through us. You know, it doesn't come from us, it comes through us. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Joey, I, I disagree with you on that one. I, I, you know what, I'm sorry. Uh, you see, and it's hard for me to say this, uh, but you're really, sometimes I'll sit back and I'll see you on television. Now look, have we all been in certain movies that are not great? Of course. But I've seen you in some great movies, playing some great parts, and that's not luck, Joey. That's not, you see, I felt differently when I was young. I felt I can't wait to show the world how great I am. Right. <laughs> well, you said I'm not a piece of shit, and that was maybe because of our upbringing. Maybe your, maybe your, I don't know. Maybe your mom and dad was was more negative, and my mom and dad were more positive. So I was like, I have all this greatness in me. They got to see this, you know. And you had the other way, but Joey, I said, you're you're really I, is the luck involved? Of course, but luck is when the old, the old cliche when perspiration meets opportunity. You worked very hard. You were a terrific actor. Nobody hands you a part at twenty five if you're not talented. See, mm -hmm. so I, I agree with people who say you are sometimes too overly humble. I'm sorry, you're not. You're really, really. A really great actor. And I'm sorry. As far as the movie stars go, that happens to five or six people on the planet every 20 years. You know, Leo and Denzel and Will. Uh, you know, there was a time Eddie Murphy. That happens only if you... But you know what? I like what we do. I, we're character actors. We work all the time. We get a chance to play different parts. You know, it's okay, man. It's cool. All right. I, I accept your apology, Chess. <laughs> I don't like I don't like when you put yourself down because I think you overly do that and I think it's wrong. Thank you. Daniela, you have any questions or, or observations? This one's kind of a question for both of you in the industry itself. So much is changing. You guys started when certain behaviors were acceptable. How has mental health and how people approach it on set and how the industry handles it changed. Thank God I, I, I don't drink anymore. But I, I remember a time um, we, were, we were at this bar, Chaz, uh, at, on uh, Lafayette, uh, next door to the public theater. Our friend Lola was there, and I had a martini. And, and, and one martini in it, I started saying, when are we going to have sex? Why don't, we, why don't we blow this popsicle stand and have sex? And Chaz said, Jesus Christ, Joey, one drink. That's all it takes, one drink. And it's just like, 
your brain just opens up. As soon as you taste that liquor, you're already in that mode. It, it was like a, it was like Pablo's response. It's the same thing. As soon as that liquor goes in your mouth, bam, another person came out, and I was like, Joey, man, you gotta chill, you know, because and it's the, and it's right. It's the drugs or the alcohol that could you see. I, I was never a drinker, and I, 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 I was really not a drug person. I mean, did I get high at that in the sixties? Yeah, but I was never a drug person. Once you once you get drunk, all bets are off. Not just for you, for anybody, for anybody. So that's why I try not to drink when I go out because I want to be in control. But once <laughs> you taste that liquor, bam, that's it. You're off to the races. To be completely honest, because of of the low self esteem that lived in you know in in the pit of my soul. That part of the reason of wanting to be successful and wanting to be in show business was that I thought that my success would get me beautiful women. You know, there was a duality there that, that you know, girls liked me because, or specific girls would like me or say yes on a date because they liked my work. But, you know, I, I never thought that if i if i had that if i was that guy that that i'd ever have opportunities with those with those women yeah but let's let's cut to the woman you married now you know i remember the first day you walked in we were in a place you say hey, Charles, i met this girl i said oh we're, we're going to meet her for dinner she walks in the door this girl with 5 foot 10 red hair gorgeous and i'm going the first thing i said to you i turned to you and i said how in the world did you ever get this girl to like you? How? And I said to myself, nah, this is a two-week. She's going to deal with this guy for a week, two weeks. She's gone. I told my wife later, I go, no, 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 no. I, and meanwhile, she's been the love of your life, and, she, she's, and you are the love of her life for God knows how many years. So you know what? You were worthy. I, we have you on film, actually. Uh when when we had the wedding, you were one of my best men. Uh, yes. You had this unbelievable epiphany where you said, she loves you, Joey. I can't believe it. I saw it. <laughs> I saw it in her eyes. And, and she loves you. And if you fuck this up, you shouldn't have a day's rest for the rest of your life because this girl really loves you. I said, she I, I saw the way she looked at you. I said, I turned to John and I said, she really loves him. <laughs> she loves him. I said, I got to tell him, if he fucks this up, you, you should never be happy again. Forget it. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe me, I tried. Danny will attest, I tried to fuck it up for 20 years. Right. I, you know, I, I had this, you know, it was this, this, this terrible thing about my illness was that I, I couldn't have any respect for anybody that wanted to love me. So, so in the back of my mind is like, well, she just wants something. And then when we got married, well, when we get, you know, when, when we get married, then she'll change. Because I was always waiting for her to turn into my mother. And she didn't turn into my mother. Okay, so when we get married, or when the prenuptial agreement is over, that's, she's, she'll change then. And, and she never changed. And, and then, uh, and then, and then I, when I got sick, she didn't leave. You know, because I made everybody's life miserable. I, I was so sick. Right. 
that I wanted everybody to be as sick as I was. I remember. You know, I could I could hang out with you. I remember. I said he's you can't hang out with him. He's. I said until he gets some help, forget it. And then, I guess you 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 got well, and now you're a different person. God bless. So I don't remember a lot of when my dad was going through that, but you know, when you have friends maybe going through something and they're at a point where it's like, how do you help them with my dad? Did you, or if you have any friends, like both of you can answer this. Do you have any tips for people if they have a friend who's struggling to a point where they need help, but everything you've tried doesn't work? Like what is there to do? And then what do you tell that person that they don't feel guilty for just stepping away? Because I think sometimes, unfortunately, you have to because it's on the person who's having the problem to... That's a very insightful question, Daniela. And I'll tell you what my answer was. Uh, and it wasn't Joey. It was another person who I was a very... I had a very dear friend, a very close friend. But he was, you know, he was... I don't know. He was just so bad at meeting people and liking... Everybody just disliked him. And he, it got to the point where I tried to help him and talk to him. And then finally my shrink, uh, Dr. Phil Stutz, said to me... He goes, Chaz, like, let me tell you something, a, true, a, a truism about life. He goes, no matter how hard you try, you can never bring somebody up if they don't want to be brought up. Never. Never. You can talk to them till you're blue in the face, and they'll never change, Daniela, unless they want to. But, he says, the same is not true reverse. A person who's like that, eventually will bring somebody down with them. So you have to let go. You have to let go and say, I pray to God that I hope he gets better and he sees somebody because I cannot get sucked down with him because I'm spending hours on the phone with him and that's what I was doing with this person. Yeah. And then people were getting alienated against me because I stood behind them. Then finally I said, I got to let him go, man. I got to let him go. And I let him go. And that was it. It's a person drowning. And you grab them to try to save them. And they hold on to you and bring you down with them. So you got to be mm -hmm. careful, Daniela. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that was the case uh, with me, too. Is I, I, I couldn't begin to change or get better until that I was sick and tired of being who I was. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it was on, on my own. You know, mommy was moments moments away from from dumping me, you know, from leaving. She just couldn't yeah. take the pain anymore. But, the, you know, there's also wonderful organizations like Al-Anon, um, uh, Alateine, uh, any kind of 12-step program. For, for, for a lot of people that don't have insurance, uh, uh, that, that if, if any of this conversation that you're listening to sounds familiar, um, there are places... That, you, that, that can help you. And, and in terms of being anonymous, uh, because of what's happened with COVID-19 and all of these Zoom meetings, there are these 12-step meetings now where you literally have anonymity, where you can just be a voice, uh, you, where you don't have to uh, press the video button so they won't have to see who you are. And that's a wonderful thing because I know that I learned so much more from hearing people describe their pain that sounded and looked a lot like me. And because I had no idea the normal 
universal aspect of the feelings that I was going through. I thought I was broken. I thought that I had, uh, that nobody felt like I felt. And it was a character defect, a flaw in my soul. And when I found out that it was quite common what I was going through, um, it really encouraged me to continue to go back and to get the help. So I always say this, if, if anything that we, we're talking about sounds familiar, reminds you of somebody in your life or yourself, you know, ask for help. So you are both men and I am a woman. As a woman, it's always been more okay for me to be emotional and to be in tune with my emotions. And you guys also grew up in a very different time where, you know, like you said, like having a shrink, like, oh my God, something's wrong with them. Um, but then add that you're a guy, so you have to be tough. Living your life with what you've learned, what would you tell not just everybody, but specifically guys, what advice would you give them if they were feeling any of this stuff, but they thought that they had to be strong and that it was shameful to feel anything? I would tell them to be strong is to admit it and to seek help. That's being strong. Be Hiding behind what you're really feeling, that's being weak. So it's the opposite. I would say, whatever you're feeling, it's the opposite. You got to man up and say, you know what? I need help. I got to go see somebody. It's okay because you know what? Once you feel good and you talk to somebody, it's like it's like a pressure valve just goes and you feel better. You know, for the last four years, it's been like to be strong was something, you know, that was lauded. Uh, but I, I think now, hopefully, uh, the the idea of vulnerability, empathy is something to, to emulate and to inspire in others because we're in this together, you know, right. uh, and, and we've been through so much pain as a as a species not just a nation i mean the entire globe we're suffering through this it's this covid is blowing up everywhere yeah uh, you know so there's a lot of fear and anxiety and it's based on an event you know the the, the idea of being what they call clinical depression is when you're depressed when you have no logical reason to feel that way well, we've got a ton of reasons. Ton of you know, reasons. We are physically, we <laughs> are appropriately responding to what's going on in our lives. So, mm -hmm. so we, you know, we should embrace that, and, and that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why I think that that talking to Chaz and uh, and the people that we have lined up, that our listeners can find the humor. Right. And how we deal with our dented selves, what it was like, what happened, and, and how we kind of regulate and manage through the fog and murk of, of this particular time in our life, which is unprecedented. Yeah. It's so funny. The answer is always simple. Uh, like, you know, how do you deal with your feelings, emotions? Just talk about it. Just talk about it. And we all know it, but nobody ever does it. And 2020, I think, is... A blessing because if you think of it as a person, you know, we've been going through things, but we've been holding it in. I feel like 2020 is everybody's rock bottom. And like right now, there's no there's no place to go except up and we have to talk like now we've always had the answer is to just talk about it. 
And now we have to because there's not a single person that isn't experiencing this. In a couple of years, maybe we'll we'll say it's a blessing. There's so much going on that it doesn't feel like it. But that could be one big take takeaway from it all is that we can finally just everyone talk about what you're feeling because we're all feeling it. I was talking to my friend last night. She's like, I have to keep remembering everybody feels the way I'm feeling right now. And Daniela, just uh, before I go, I, I want to say that it's very smart of you to say that because no one, no human being likes pain. We don't want pain. We want we want to live through life, uh, you know, having a great time. Uh, nobody gets sick. Our kids are healthy. We don't fight with our wives. You got a great meal. Every every life is beautiful. But you know what? It's not that way. Life is hard. Mm-hmm. So many many therapists and many people would say, choose your hard. Yeah. Is it harder? Is it harder to be a success? Yes. Is it hard to wake up one day and be a failure? Yes. Choose your heart. There's a piece of cake and you're overweight. And you look at it and you go, oh my God, if I eat that cake, I know it's going to be bad for me. But but saying no is hard. Choose your heart, babe. You know, life is hard. Mm-hmm. But you don't learn from success. You learn from your failures. And the world is going to be a better place after this COVID. Yep. The world will be a better place. It's hard right now, but mm-hmm. let me tell you something. People are going to go out and they're going to have a more of a zest for life. And it will change. We got through, we've been, mankind's been here a long time. America got through two world wars. The life is crazy right now with everything going on. We'll get through it. We'll get through it. And but you know what? Just be grateful for today and for what you mm-hmm. have. Yep. Man, there's some other people in the, on, an, on another part of this planet that are doing a lot worse. So you know what? Let's be thankful. Let's pray for them and be thankful. So that's a great way to end. And remember that. Thank your uncle Chaz, Daniela, because life is hard and then you die. Yeah, <laughs> I forget who said that. That was my favorite. That somebody was was it was it W. C. Fields? No, he. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, it is hard, but. You, but yeah. he, forgot, he forgot the other part of it. Life is hard, but you learn from the hard parts, right. and then you die. And then you die. <laughs> or as my friend Joey Beans would say, Joey Beans would say, life is a shit sandwich. You either eat it or starve. <laughs> I will end this discussion. It's been great, really. <laughs> that was great. That was fun. I like, I'd love hearing you talk to your friends. I love hearing you laugh. It's so hard to talk to my friends these days because we're being desocialized. So we don't talk, we text. You know, it's like somebody says, hey, have you talked to so-and-so? Yeah, I talked to him yesterday, but I didn't talk to him. I texted with him. Yeah. So to be able to talk today for real was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really fun. And just hearing you guys tell your stories, you guys both have incredible stories of how you grew up and how you got into the business. Um, And that's really great. And I loved how open Chaz was about his therapy. And I think it's something very important for men to be willing to talk about their emotions and go to therapy. And I loved that you, you see Chaz and he's this six foot seven I don't know if he's six foot seven, but he seems he's this well, he tall. Was when he was four years old. Yes, he's this tall man, 
and and he's a he's a man you know he's this italian strong man and you'd never think that he's been in therapy for most of his life you know you think oh he just has it together well even if he does it's nice to go to therapy to talk to someone whether you have your shit together or not that's why we have our shit together uh it's not therapy as much as it's self-examination mm, i like that when i'm talking uh they're just listening mm-hmm. and, and 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 a good portion of the time is i'm figuring it out just because i'm talking and i think that's the point yeah they want you to figure it out for yourself they're they're just for an extra push, you know, some extra tools to give you, but we do the work on our own. Don't, don't think that you need therapy is great. And I do think everyone should go to therapy, but even just talking to yourself, Daniela, a life unexamined is not worth living. That's true. That's a quote I heard somewhere. I like that. And I like how Chaz has been examining his life and has, and and tells other other people um, or gives the gives advice and shares. I really liked how Chaz shares his experience with the listeners. He was very open with us, um, and that's that's why we're you here. Like what you hear, and you and, and 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 you identify with any of this, and it feels familiar, and maybe you're thinking like, "Gee, I'd like to get a little bit of help with that." Mm-hmm. You're free. There's so many wonderful options out there. See if there's free um, in your neighborhood where you live. There's free options. If you're in school, go to the counselor centers. It's great. Um, if you're in so school. 12-step programs. 12-step programs, yep. Emotion, they got emotional, anonymous. They got. Yeah, it's not just for alcoholics anymore. Ask my dad. He's He's gone to all of the meetings for all of the things. <laughs> I've got I've got coins. Uh, from you know when I was in Afghanistan. <laughs> oh, from from doing meetings there. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. If you want to take a first step at a small one, send us an email. You know, and and tell us your story. We'll read it. We'll reply back if we can. You know, we we we'll get a lot of emails, so so don't hate us if we don't respond. But sometimes, just sending it to someone, just sending it out, just getting it out of your body feels really good so write it in a journal or send us your story maybe we'll read it on one of our smaller episodes um if you want us to let us know but it's just good to get it out self-examination the ability to do these 12-step talks via zoom which Mm -hmm. really gives you the anonymity Mm -hmm. that is so necessary um you know you don't even have to let them see you you can just be a uh, mm-hmm. You just let them hear you. In the Zooms. You belong in those Zooms. Tell your friends about us, please. Your family members. We're here for you. You're here for us. Let everybody know about No Kidding Me To, the podcast. Leave us a rating. You know, one, two, three, four, five, five stars, five stars. Um, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Spotify or wherever you listen. Danny will call you and say, hey, how come you only gave us four stars? I will. I definitely will. The point is, is that we won't (laughs) accept anything less than five stars. We are five star (laughs) stuff, period. I love you, Danny. I love you, Daddy.